0: Could we go beyond impact of war on people? Is there a way to paint a picture of Yemen and its people beyond conflict? Welcome to the One World Media Podcast.
1: Welcome to the One World Media Podcast, Behind the Stories. I'm your host, Aisha, from One World Media. For 35 years, the One World Media Awards have celebrated the world's best journalism. We're celebrating this milestone by launching this podcast to interview some of our past winners and friends who remind us why stories and storytellers are important. At One World Media, we believe that stories shape our world. It matters how they're told. We support journalists and filmmakers across the Global South to tell underreported stories that inform and connect us all. In this limited series podcast, we'll travel to the Middle East, the African continent and Mexico to hear from our guests about how they got to where they are now and the experiences along the way that have shaped them as journalists and people. We'll hear from these senior journalists about how the media industry has changed, what's gotten better since they started working, what still needs to improve and changes they're hopeful to see. On this episode, you'll hear from Annie Slamrod, Middle East editor at The New Humanitarian, who talks about her story, How Coronavirus Hit Aden, a Yemeni doctor's diary which won the One World Media Coronavirus Reporting Award in 2020. As COVID-19 tears through Yemen, claiming victims in a country already affected by war, Dr. Amr Darwish, a 32-year-old doctor, has been documenting the toll on his community. She's joined by One World Media trustee May Noman, for her BBC audio story, Death Will Come Tomorrow, which is a Yemeni saying. The story looks at why Yemen can't cope with another health crisis and how the country responded to COVID-19. For context, Yemen has had a civil war since 2014 that affects press freedom. Independently reported news and information is difficult as the media is controlled by various parties involved in the conflict. Journalists are exposed to the possibility of abduction, violence, and abuse, and they risk being the targets of death threats, murder, or bombings. If detained, they may be mistreated and tortured. Four imprisoned journalists have been sentenced to death and could be executed at any moment. In 2023, Yemen ranks 168 out of 180 countries on the Press Freedom Index by Reporters Without Borders. May, Annie, thanks so much for joining us, welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So we'll jump right into the questions. Um, May, if you want to go first, what stands out in your memory about reporting the story? Gosh, um, I think it's about how emotional I felt about the resilience of Yemeni people.
0: They've been through so much, whether it's poverty, war, displacement, natural disasters, disease, famine, and then there was this new crisis that Japanese were not equipped equipped to deal with, um, and yet they resorted to their old wisdom that kept them going. Um, yeah, I found it incredibly hard looking into the story specifically, because there's just been so much um, that Yemenis have had to deal with. And, you know, this was just the latest disaster that they had to deal with.
2: Yeah, May, I mean, you reported the story, I think, in September 2020. Is that right? Or it was published then? Yes, that's true. So that's six months after um, Dr. Darwish started uh writing the diary that we eventually published. Uh, so it was really interesting to me how our stories sort of intersected. You know, uh, our diary or his diary, which I edited, was at a time when COVID-19 was, uh, you know, just uh, coursing through Aden in particular. It was the time it was thought that it was a city that had one of the highest death rates on Earth. And by the time you got there, um, it sounded like people were sort of exhausted and you know didn't didn't want it to exist anymore, which is was interesting to me in part because at the start of um, Dr. Darwish's diary was, it was similar. Um, people were, you know didn't want to believe it, much like I guess a lot of places on, on when it first started.
0: Absolutely, I felt there was a lot of resistance um, to accepting this new reality, um, and people just didn't know what to do with this new information. So they blocked it out and whether it was people I worked with and asked to use masks, um, who would tell me, you know, COVID does not exist. Um, Yeah, I understand why they would think that. It just felt like it was a bit too much. And I think denial just had to be a part of that reality for a while. Um, yeah, I'm, I just, it's interesting how to see and reflect today about how they went through it and you'd think they survived it unscathed, however the figures and the stories you hear about how P struggled, um, it's just really sad. Yeah, how did you approach tackling this
2: story? Well, the story really came to me. It was at a time when um, a lot of reporters were were pretty much grounded um, because of COVID nineteen. We just really weren't sure. There were lockdowns in a lot of places. Traveling was impossible. And uh, Dr. Darwish, uh, I'll call him Amar, um, with his permission, is had had already been uh, writing this diary had um, since. Uh, coronavirus hit his community he sort of just felt the need to document it as you know his family got sick his neighbor neighbors got sick people were talking about what is this virus and he felt like he had to do something so he um basically just did what he could um he wasn't working at a hospital but you know people were desperately coming to him asking for help so he went out and 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 did what he could so uh, a colleague who who knew Amar um us in touch and said look there's this diary Um, Would you be interested in publishing it so it came he he had been writing it sometimes in notes on his phone it was really 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 long and my role was was as editor and that just really involved um spending a lot of time with Amar um verifying what happened my phone was full of pictures of the people and places um in the diary and um Some of those eventually became the illustrations that you can see if you look at it by Adli Mirza, who's a Yemeni, um, who's originally from Aden, actually has lived outside of the country for decades. And it actually turned out that he and Amar are distant relatives, which was a really lovely (laughs) coincidence. (laughs) Very typical Yemeni. Yeah, that's what they both said. Um, So, yeah, I mean, the way I approached it was sort of knowing as a journalist that you know, this diary had already be written, been written. I couldn't um, impact that, and that I couldn't change what had been written, and that felt really important to me. Actually, I sort of was to listen to Amar, um, and as we went through and edited, because it was a lot longer than what but published, I really felt like, you know, even though I was sitting on my couch a lot of the time, um, that I got to know. Um, I really felt like I was, I was there. Um, you know, he talks about the volleyball, he's playing with his friends and it's happening during Ramadan. So, you know, a lot of it's happening at night and he talks about the heat and the humidity and the power going out. And I just, as each person got sick, I really, I, got, I think I, I got really personally involved in the story. So, and at the same time I got to know Amar and I actually, I felt like that really came through in your story too. The, you also mentioned the heat <laughs> in Aiden <laughs> and just people talking and how, how intertwined everyone's life, um is, and I don't know, I really loved when I was listening to your story, noticing how they um, sort of mirrored each other in that way, even though yours was six months later.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that really stood out for me was how different the reality was in the South from the North Mm. and how different every story was in different parts of Yemen. And I think because specifically now the country operates as two different states and that means two different realities and you know what is true today is not necessarily the same tomorrow Um, and to give that complete picture of what's going on in Yemen you have to actually speak to people from different parts of the country and really understand the context of what's going on in that part of the country.
2: Yeah, I mean, I that's a major challenge for me as Middle East editor, as I'm sure you know, um, for journalists who live in Yemen, um, depending on where they live, they have uh, different constraints. It can be really dangerous um, for them to do their jobs, either because of the direct impacts of the war or because um, it's just not safe for them to, to report and um, you know, the way the hospitals, you know, by the time COVID came around, not, the health care system was absolutely decimated, either because of underfunding or because of the war. And it's so true that um, it was very, very hard at that time for us to get any idea. I mean, getting statistics on what's happening in Yemen is generally a challenge, but it was so chaotic. Um, it was really, really hard to to get a picture of what was happening with COVID during Sana, or in Sana, excuse me. Um, and Aden was slightly easier, but I mean, those are only two cities, of course, um, and Yemen is, is a big country, and getting a picture in general of anything, is, especially at a time when you know, it was just really chaos with the hospitals filling up, um, was really hard. So you know, in this case, we just decided to, what we could do. The best thing that we could do was focus on, on this one community and this one story. Um, but it, you know, you never, I guess, in that case, get a full picture you just get one person's story or one community's story.
0: Absolutely. It's one of the biggest challenges in covering Yemen. And as a country, it was never an easy place to be a journalist. Right. But independent journalism existed, especially in the north. And it had a bold and loud voice. Um, You know, it's not that journalists weren't harassed by the government but the level to which they are persecuted today um, is terrifying. I don't know if you found specific difficulties in the North compared to Aden.
2: I mean, I don't even know how to begin listing the difficulties. So we we work with freelancers um, and the difficulties that they deal with. um, Yes, they certainly differ. we um, I would say that um, most people who journalists who can leave the country have left the country by now because it's it's just such an unsafe profession and an unsafe you know often place to be. Um, and you know, in general, I think that's really important to remember. I mean you've worked with uh, you worked with the BBC for this story and you worked with the BBC. Um, I don't know, do you find like that there's, I mean, there's the problems that Yemeni journalists face internally, which are just, as you said, massive. Um, but in terms of, um, Getting stories out on international media—do you find that there's an appetite for that? Because that's something I've really struggled with. I think at this point, my friends and my colleagues find me really annoying because every time there's a pitch meeting, or <laughs> people are like, "What's happening in the news?" I'm like, "Oh, about Yemen," and yeah. like that's—it's—it's it's a constant struggle, um, you know, to get coverage. Is that something that you've dealt with?
0: If I'm honest, I think that was my biggest frustration working for an international organization. Mm-hmm was that Yemen was not an easy sell, ever. Yep. Um, And when it was, it was the typical stereotypical stories. You could tell them, or you could sell to them a story about starving children. Or, you know, uh, Al-Qaeda. They were just very stereotypical stories that Yemen would be appealing to editors for, and specifically, if it had a Saudi angle. But Yemen, as a Yemen, as a country, um, as a people, as just normal stories, it never appealed. And I think that, for me, especially as a Yemeni, I found incredibly frustrating. And I I took it as a challenge. How do you make Yemen relatable to a global audience that doesn't necessarily know anything about the country and doesn't necessarily care? Um, And we tried different angles. We tried different approaches and narratives. It wasn't all sad stories. But it was, it was still very difficult to sell to the editors and to the audience. Yeah, I mean, I, I, even though I am
2: the editor, (laughs) I still deal with this. And I think um, what you said about there needing to be a Saudi connection or Al-Qaeda is something that I've, you know, I guess it's just, it's bothered me for years, I mean, So I I work at a a news organization that focuses on humanitarian crises. Yemen, for a long time, you know, it's been at war for more than eight years. It was called the world's largest or worst humanitarian crisis. Uh, I don't necessarily think we need to compare crises. But, you know, except for when there is um, something that has to do with the U.S. or the U.K. or a peace deal or some kind of offensive, it's really... It can be hard to keep the spotlight on a protracted crisis like this where people i don't think really even paid that much attention before um i when i um started this job um it was pretty early in the war and we had a freelance contributor called al-migdad majali and we got i got to know him pretty well and um he was killed in an airstrike in early 2016, and like before he died, he left the country for a little bit. And I think about this all the time, and I actually wrote about it. He was in Jordan, and when he came back, he, he was like, Annie, I'm shocked. Not even the Arabic language papers are covering the war in Yemen. Mm-hmm. And, um, I ended up writing a piece. I think it was called "Why Does Nobody Care About Yemen?" And I think, <laughs> because, and like seriously, growing up, I think the the thing that I knew about Yemen, like it was sort of a joke. Do you know, like, that Friends. Yemen, fr- Yes. Okay. So <laughs> Yemen is so unknown that it's a joke. That so when Chandler wants to get from get away from Janice, Janice, he says he's moving to Yemen. Yeah. And Joey says, "Um, Yemen. That even sounds like a real country." Yeah. And like that is so emblematic of. I think you know the way the international media portrays Yemen, and and of course, as you know, um, the people who decide what is newsworthy, uh, what should make the headlines, are mostly white, Western cis het men. Have I wealthy? Have I? I don't know. Have I got the whole list? So I mean, (laughs) like you know, people like us often aren't the ones who are saying, actually, this this really does matter. I mean, you know. I checked the stats before we sat down to talk. They were talking about a country where, according to the UN, anyway, 21 million people need some sort of aid or protection. That's three quarters of the population, and 4.5 million are, you know, have been forced to flee their homes. And it's you know chronic malnutrition. But at the same time, what you said, I mean, I even struggle as a humanitarian journalist to make those numbers mean something. And I don't think it's all about, like you said, starving babies. I mean, I think. People need to relate, and ideally, like on a best day, journalism creates empathy, and that can be all sorts of stories. I think your piece did that really well. I just felt like I was there. I really, um, you know, I just I felt like I was listening uh, to those conversations in the streets in Sanaa, even though I, I can't personally go there, I can't get a visa. Um, so that's something, I don't know, I have some upcoming projects and ongoing projects where I'm, I'm really just trying to, I think, get people just to care a little bit um, And that can be a
0: challenge.
2: <laughs> it
0: really is. And I think beyond selling it to editors, it's getting the stories out of Yemen. Yes. So it's finding people who are willing to speak to you, mm-hmm. especially on camera. It's getting women to speak to you. I was in Texas in 2007. Uh-huh and this guy just grabbed me and said, asked me where are you from i said yemen no he said really where are you from what? i said i'm from yemen he said no that's not a real country so you met the actual joey yeah and he was not charming
2: nope <laughs> yeah that's really um poor yes that's um the well as an american maybe i can say um an indictment of the uh, how we learn geography and the education system <laughs> yes actually i mean i grew up um i grew up in michigan so while i didn't like when i started working i didn't working uh, on the middle east i didn't know loads about yemen over the past i you probably know this but um there's a city in Michigan which used to be home to mostly (laughs) Palestinians. Yemenis. Yes. Well, it used to be mostly Palestinians and people from South Lebanon. But in the last few years, it's become um, like loads and loads of people have have come from Yemen. And it's um, now the first Muslim majority city council in the United States. (laughs) And it I mean, when I fly home now, I'm flying home with mostly Yemenis. And it's great, like actually, in a lot of ways. I mean, of course, lots of people you know, are are leaving their home for, for because they're fleeing the war, the economic crisis, the impacts of the war. But, you know, um, it is in a lot of ways thriving. I mean, my parents have, you know, they get really excited when they meet someone from Yemen because they're like, oh, my daughter's been to Yemen. And whenever, like, a new uh, Yemeni coffee shop uh, opens up, they go and they visit and then they, like, report back. It's really nice. This has become, like, a family thing now. That's really lovely. Well, actually, I wanted to ask you, I mean... Um, I know that working on um, humanitarian crises or war can take a real toll on on the reporters themselves and recently there's been, I I also um, work on other countries in the Middle East, Uh, there's been some prominent Syrian journalists who have said um, that they're not going to write about Syria anymore because it's just it's too hard and I was wondering for you, I mean you're, you don't live in Yemen, but your family is there. Um, And I really, you know, in in your piece, it really came through your, your, of course, emotional connection. Um, I'm wondering how it's, how it, you know, how it's impacted you to report um, on this place as the war happens really far away or, you know, when you are able to visit. um,
0: Is that difficult for you? It's probably one of the hardest things that I've uh, had to deal with. It's really interesting because I had to listen to the program that I recorded for the BBC about COVID in Yemen before um, our interview today, and it was ex- it was that exact same thought that your Syrian friend had. Just listening to that same story again, I found it incredibly depressing. Um, and I'm not sure I can keep doing it. And that makes me really sad because I want to keep that connection with Yemen very much alive, Um, especially that I have a daughter now who's never been to Yemen. Mm. She's half Kiwi, half Yemeni. Um, It's quite an interesting mix. And I do want her to be connected to her culture and identity. Uh, But I think maybe not the war side of things. And it's very taxing on me. I want to connect her to the songs, the culture, the history, the traditions. But there's a very strong need in me today to just disconnect from the war. Um, but I don't want to relive it.
2: Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think you have to take care of yourself. I know that's something that a lot of journalists um, who are reporting on the places they are from deal with. And um, I think it, it makes you have to take on a lot of responsibility. Um, that you shouldn't have to really take on as one person (laughs) this responsibility to feel like you have to shine a spotlight on Yemen. um, You know, it's not really fair that we we put all this on on journalists from places that are um, at war or dealing with places like this, because um, not not to mention the fact that um, often uh, the journalists on the ground don't get the credit that they get um, when they are working with international journalists, which I guess is a, a slightly different issue, but one that's that's always um, always bothered me. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I'll I'll explain, which is that you know when when um, international journalists go to Yemen, um, they're usually working with a, a full team, um, translators, um, local journalists who we often call fixers, but they're usually just local journalists, and they don't often end up getting bylines or, or really any credit, um, which is something that. Um, you know, at the New Humanitarian, we have, uh, have changed, or at least for ourselves. And I think there, there may be some movement in the media to, to change this, but I don't think it's, it's really uh, nearly good enough. Um, but also, um, yeah, I mean, I really, uh, I'm sorry that you've had to, I can't imagine what it really feels like. Because, um, of course, there's this rich history that of course, you want to expose your daughter to. But, um war is something else? Um, and um, do you stay in touch with your your family and in, in Yemen?
0: So most of my family uh, have now moved to Egypt. Okay. Egypt is now the biggest home. Yeah, for Yemenis. Yeah. Uh, and it's lovely in a way. Because you get to have that community. Mm-hmm. And there's so many Yemen restaurants. Um, Yemeni shops and events. Um, So it's really lovely to connect with everyone that you knew there. But it's also sad that, you know, that doesn't exist in Yemen anymore,
2: Mm.
0: for me at least. Yeah.
2: One of the things that Amar's diary really led me to was the importance of listening for journalists, because I wasn't Mm -hmm. there. you know, and I think more and more it's important to me um, to realize that when, when journalists are on the ground, um, particularly international journalists, but maybe everyone, you know, we sort of drive the answers people give us by the questions we ask and by the story mm-hmm. that we're assigned and um, the, the amount of time we have. And um, Amar's diary really made me um, think about maybe journalists needing to step back uh, and listen more. And that our role, there's a journalist I really admire who said, um, I'm paraphrasing that storytelling, has a what did you say? Uh, I think a a hero complex. Um, Mm -hmm. I think I'm I'm probably getting the quote wrong, but you know you get the idea. Um, And I think like more and more I think that journalism should be, um, if I could if I ran the world, um, about maybe amplifying and collecting and documenting and. Um, that's something that, um, I'm trying to do more in my work and that this piece made me realize. Um, so I'm about to launch this thing called the Yemen listening project, which is the idea is it's going to invite Yemenis to share their stories about how the war has impacted them and they can do it in their language in a way that's easy to contribute to, um, in a play, say safe way that I hope people will feel comfortable contributing um so i guess watch the space but also i'm wondering what you think about that as sort of i don't know the sort of old school rule of role of the journalist as sort of the you know the person who's telling the story and you know even if you're not in look. the story yeah i mean yeah. if there's a way that we can sort of step back as journalists and let people tell their own stories more i think there's definitely a need for that i was reading back reading back through the diary this morning and one of the things that struck me is when we won the um, One World Award, I remember the judges said uh, that they felt they could really relate to it, that it was a universal story. Mm. And I, reading through it, I think there were a lot of things that that were universal, you know, that people everywhere experienced this sort of disbelief of what was happening. There's moments when Amar feels like, you know, is wondering, is this place dirty? Is this contaminated? Like... And, uh, or wearing masks or not wearing masks, all this stuff. And, you know, they couldn't, but there couldn't be a lockdown there. But at the end of the day, I think um, I was really glad that it was universal and that it could connect people in that way. But also, you know, at the beginning of COVID, people were saying it's this great equalizer. And mm-hmm. that, um, in fact, I think it really, it's not, it wasn't. It turned out that was wrong and that it impacted people really differently based on where they lived, their class, their race, their economic status, everything. Mm.
0: Let me ask you this question. Yes. If you had a magic wand mm. to change the way we cover stories about Yemen mm. and the way people receive it, what would you do?
2: So I would like to have a, a platform where people can share their stories either about how the war has impacted them or about their lives in whatever language they want um, and also in a way that's accessible for them to read. So, um, you know, that's something I've been talking about a lot with colleagues um, that, you know, as, as you probably know very well, internet can be really uh, bad, tricky. tricky. Yeah. And so that would be like really low bandwidth, easy to read on your, read on your phone, distributed in a way that people... Um, you know, normally read their news, which is not necessarily the same in every part of the world. Um, So I guess the short answer to that long rambling sentence was, it would be a way that people could tell their own stories and I would just sort of be the go-between or the media would be the go-between. And uh, yeah, that's it. I mean, I think there's a lot more to it, as you know. There's, you know, when people start talking, From anywhere, it could go for a long time. There is a role for editors, uh, for better or worse. Um, But I think journalism in general uh, needs to be more of a platform. And I also think um, that Yemeni, that, I mean, Yemen, as you know, has a great history of storytelling. I don't know. They don't really need me to tell their stories. Um, I think they already, that tradition is already there. Um, They just need maybe the platform. So, I mean, I want to ask you the same question. Magic wand. um, What would you, how would you change? Or what would you do? What would your ideal way of um, doing journalism of Yemen or letting journalism in Yemen
0: happen, rather? My dream would be for Yemenis to be visible. Mm. There's something about Being able to see a Yemeni face Mm. and recognize that is a Yemeni face. I can't tell you how many times, wherever I am in the world, I would say to someone, I'm from Yemen. And they'd say, oh, but you don't look Yemeni. (laughs) And I'd ask them, do you know what Yemenis look like? Yeah. And they'd say no, because I look very typical Yemeni. Um, and there's something about that, you know, just being able to humanize the people, not just their stories or voices. Um, it's not just their relatability, but it's actually being able to see their faces. Okay. Um, it's, it's a very big challenge because we talked about how difficult it is to show especially Yemeni women's faces Yemen has become a very conservative country um it didn't used to be the case when my mother was growing up yeah i have photos of my mother in girl scouts um her hair is not covered her face is not covered yeah and yet today when you go especially to the north of Yemen you will hardly see any woman's face so they're covered from head to toe Um, and that makes them invisible in their own country let alone to the world Mm. Um, and as a Yemeni woman and a mother of a Yemeni girl i find that very troubling i want us to be more visible and I want to find a way to make that happen without forcing people right, <laughs> uh, to change the way they live. Mm. You know, I think there needs to be a creative way to do this in this day and age. Yeah, well, that gives me a lot to think
2: about in terms of um, work going forward and how the importance of visuals um, and how we can we can do that. Well, and the importance of, of seeing seeing yourself or people like yourself, um, Represented. Uh, Represented. Yeah, I think that's really, really important. Um, Absolutely. I will keep that in mind.
0: Excellent. I look forward to this project of yours.
1: All right. I think uh, I'm getting a message that we have got to stop talking. May, Annie, thank you so much. This has been such a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Um, To end if I can just ask both of you uh, a question to end on. Um, What has been the greatest surprise of your career?
2: May you Annie, go- do you want to go first? <laughs> I was going to say, May, do you want to go first? <laughs> uh, okay, you talked first, so I'll go first. Um, I think the relationships and friendships that I've built, I, um, you know, and that people have been so willing to share really intimate details of their lives with me. Uh, for example, uh, Amar, Dr. Darwish, um, we really got to know each other through this process. Um you know, Adley, the illustrator, drew a picture of my cat. But just in general, the fact that people are really um, willing to let people into their lives, uh, willing to let me into their lives has been uh, a surprise and um, a
0: true honor. Thanks. May? I think for me was when the war started in Yemen, I was covering the news from the newsroom in London and I found that incredibly difficult. And I thought actually going to Yemen um, would be impossible for me because I just found it incredibly depressing. And in many situations, and on many days, and on many shifts, I couldn't cope. I've had moments where I had to go to my editor and say, I'm not doing well. Um, And so I thought going to Yemen for me to cover the war was just impossible. Um, But when I did go, I was incredibly surprised at how much better I felt just being there. Because it meant that I could actually see everything with my own eyes. I could see people, I could see houses, I could see the places where I created memories were still there. And that reassured me. But also I saw how people connected with each other, how much they relied on each other, how important communities were. Even in the midst of the worst crisis, people were there for each other. And it was incredibly inspirational But also depressing, of course, but it built a resilience inside me that I couldn't have had if I hadn't gone. And I think that was very surprising.
1: Thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed these stories. Please listen to the other episodes of this podcast on South Africa and Mexico and the wider region. If you like this podcast, please rate or review us and tell your friends about it, and share it on social media. Thanks for your support, and thank you for joining us. This episode was recorded in London at the Edit Store, part of Clearcut Group. Thanks to our executive producer and host, Aisha, audio editor, Lawrence Westercott, executive producer, Will Jamieson, and producer, Charlie evans Flag.